The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, <coughs> last session for this time. I'm going to have a look at the very last sutta, which is a uh, one of the standard suttas I like to look at on uh, these retreats. Uh, it's really about the uh, uh, progress of meditation, taking it all the way to the very end of the path. So this kind of gives you the very last things. Uh, so far we have looked at how to deal with um, thoughts, uh, yeah, and how to kind of guide the mind in the right direction. Uh, and then when the mind is kind of heading in the right direction, then you're ready to uh, take take it all the way to, you know, through the meditation practice the mindfulness of breathing and all that and take it all the way ultimately to the end of the path uh, so this is this little sutta and um, uh, called the chaitana sutta in pali uh, and one of the things that has always kind of i find interesting is all well, what are the fundamental and most important suttas in the pali canon or that the buddha gave you know uh, passed on to all his disciples and uh, of course, all the suttas that the Buddha gave are important, but uh, how can we kind of focus maybe on those that really are essential? Uh, and the way to do that is often to look at uh, the ones that recur in many times, many times, yeah, again and again, the things that you find the Buddha emphasized uh, in different places to different people, to, you know, all kinds of people, really. Uh, and these will often be the things that are most essential and most prominent, anyway, among his all his teachings. Uh, and this particular sutta, the kind of structure you find here, is actually very prominent in the suttas. You find it in many, many different places. Uh, and as I mentioned the other day, you also find it in the Chinese translation. Uh, and very fascinating. You translate it from Chinese and from the Pali. And this particular sutta is almost exactly the same, yeah, which is kind of very, uh, uh, gives a sense of something that is still very authentic and going back all the way to the time of the Buddha. Uh, but... Um, the sutta in itself also occurs many places in the Pali Canon as well. Not only does this particular sutta occur many places in the Pali Canon, but there are many suttas that are very similar to this sutta, that have the same kind of rough same structure. Yeah, And when things have roughly the same structure, roughly giving you the same message, then obviously it must be an important message. And to show you how this works, uh, is I have some tables on the very last page, page 21, I suppose it is. Uh, there are some tables that show you how how these things uh, uh, go together. So this sutta we're going to have a look at uh, uh, is the one on in the left-hand column, dependent uh, liberation. Yeah, that's the sutta we're going to look at in a second. And then this shows you how this dependent liberation compares to other aspects of the path. Yeah, So here we have dependent liberation compared to the awakening factors, uh, yeah, the seven factors of awakening. Uh, and, uh, uh, and there's a very close similarity between the two. It may not be immediately obvious, uh, but uh, there's a lot of similarity here. And particularly in the middle there, you have the joy, tranquility, and samadhi. Yeah, This is kind of the essence of the, the uh, peaceful meditations. Uh, of the mindfulness of breathing taking you all the way to samadhi uh, that is kind of the, that whole essence of meditation is right there in the middle uh, and uh, uh, the other factors here uh, are also very closely related so for example energy 
mindfulness and gladness, those three factors, they always occur together in the suttas. Uh, pamuja, yeah, mindfulness and energy, these are basically uh, the same idea looked at from different angles. If you have energy, you have the gladness, you also have the mindfulness, they all come together. Uh, and uh, investigation is just one aspect of that mindfulness. Uh, and at the very end, you have the even-mindedness. Well, that's just one aspect of samadhi. So once you see that, you can see basically these is the same sequence uh, looked at from slightly different point of view. Uh, but basically, it is the same thing. Yeah. So awakening factors, yeah, the seven awakening factors, they are part of the 37 aids to awakening, the uh, uh, bodhipakya dhammas. Uh, this is what I taught on the retreat last year. Uh, and this is one of the fundamental sets that when you look at the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Sutta with the Buddha's final passing away, uh, he talks about the 37 factors of awakening as that which his disciples should remember for the future. Uh, yet this is the essence of the Buddha's awakening in a sense. Uh, and seven of those, 37, is the awakening factor. So this is a very important set in the suttas. Uh, there's a whole chapter on the awakening factors in the Sangyutta Nikaya, connected discourses, about over 100 suttas on this particular topic. Uh, so you can see that this particular way of thinking about the path is very prominent in the suttas. Uh, if you go to the next page, uh, page 22, uh, here we have... Uh, the same sequence again, yeah, dependent liberation, and here compared to mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. Mindfulness of breathing, obviously another very important part of uh, the suttas. Yeah, it's roughly equivalent to Satipatthana, and uh, it, has, it occurs in many places in the suttas. Yeah. And again, you can see that all those core aspects there are the same. Yeah, the joy is there, the tranquilization uh, is there uh, in a slightly different way. Uh, and then you have the uh, stilling and the liberating of the mind. Those two are both about samadhi. Uh, yeah? And uh, uh, so again, a lot of similarity between the two. Again, it's basically the same sequence, uh, but looked at from a slightly different way. One focuses on the breath and then the feelings that come with the breath. And the, on the other one just focuses on the actual feelings, uh, the dependent liberation. Uh. But again, they are basically the same sequences. Uh, with a slightly different emphasis. Uh, if you go to the last, very last page, uh, this is uh, uh, dependent liberation again, uh, and there you have the six, the recollections, the anusatis. Uh, so this is like the recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, Chaga, Sila, and all of that. Uh, and uh, again, you see here very, very, very close. Uh, connection between the two. In fact, it's here it's almost exactly the same sequence. Yeah, uh, The straight mind is just another word for virtue uh, in the suttas. Uh, and then you have the um, uh, inspiration is really the only thing which is kind of different there, but otherwise the sequence is uh, exactly the same. Uh, another important set in the suttas. So you can see how important this particular way of thinking about meditation is. Uh, and this particular way of thinking about Meditation, one of the things about the way the Buddha teaches, uh, he teaches the same thing from many different angles. Uh, and one of the angles is what you do in meditation. Yeah, you watch the breath or you uh, or whatever it is that you do. Another one is uh, the focus that you have here is on your experience, how what it feels like when meditation goes in the right way, when meditation actually 
fulfills its purpose. And this is about how, what it feels like. It's like a psychological view of meditation practice. So if we come back uh, to the sutta again, let's have a let's have a look at it. So page twenty, a sutta called "Making a Wish," Chaitanya Sutta, Anguttara Nikaya, numerical discourses, the tenth chapter, the second sutta in the tenth chapter. So this is how this goes. Now we have established how important it is. Now we can have a look at the uh, actual sequence. Uh, Mendicants, an ethical person who has fulfilled ethical conduct, uh, needs not make a wish. Uh, May I have no regrets. Uh, It is only natural that an ethical person has no regrets. When you have no regrets, you need not make a wish. May I feel joy here. It is only natural that joy springs up when you have no regrets. When you feel joy, you need not make a wish, may I experience rapture. It is only natural that rapture arises when you feel joyful. When your mind is full of rapture, you need not make a wish, may my body become tranquil. It is only natural that the body becomes tranquil when your mind is full of rapture. When your body is tranquil, you need not make a wish. May I feel bliss. It's only natural to feel bliss when your body is tranquil. When you feel bliss, you need not make a wish. May my mind be immersed in samadhi. It is only natural for the mind to be immersed in samadhi when you feel bliss. When your mind is immersed in samadhi, you need not make a wish. May I truly know and see. It's only natural to truly know and see when your mind is immersed in samadhi. When you truly know and see, you need not make a wish. May I become disillusioned and dispassionate, or may I experience kind of aversion or even repulsion and be dispassionate. It is only natural to become disillusioned and dispassionate when you truly know and see. When you're disillusioned and dispassionate, you need not make a wish. May I realize the knowledge and vision of freedom. It is only natural to realize the knowledge and vision of freedom uh, when you are disillusioned and dispassionate. So this is the sequence of meditation, how it takes you all the way from the beginning of the path to the very end uh, and how it is experienced. This is like the internal experience, uh, how it actually works. uh. And um, because you see here it is a natural sequence, yeah, uh, it says here that you need not make a wish, but as I like to point out, the Pali doesn't actually quite say that. Chaitanya uh, Karaniya actually means that uh, it cannot be done by uh, by intention. Yeah, you cannot. This is not a process that happens through intention. Uh, intention is irrelevant. Uh, in fact, if it is a natural process and you try to use intention, as I tried to explain before with a little child that gets patient and tries to pull the plant yeah, to make it grow faster, uh, usually has a bad effect on the plant if you try to pull it. Okay, grow, grow, tick. Okay, done. Plant destroyed instead. Uh, and this is a bit like meditation practice. Yeah, If you try to make it work, if something that is natural and you try to pull on your meditation, metaphorically speaking, uh, then it is not going to work. It's going to often end up destroying the process instead. So this is why this idea of being 
uh, patient uh, and just sitting back and allowing things to take uh, uh, kind of work by themselves just very gently nudging the mind in the right direction uh, allowing you reminding yourself where real happiness is to be found uh, remembering maybe some good things from the past that gives rise to a little bit of a joy but it's very gentle nudge yeah it's not something that takes a lot of willpower at all uh, it is a natural sequence so it's, it, this is actually very interesting and this is so much in the, the buddhist suttas are precisely about these natural sequences of cause and effect uh, how one thing leads to another as a matter of course there's nothing really much you have to do about it uh, because what it means, and this is the obvious point here, what it means is that the first factor is incredibly important. Because if everything else is cause and effect, well then it is the first one that really matters uh, in your ability to fulfill all the other ones. Uh, and here, the first one here is translated as ethic, ethical conduct, uh, which um, maybe uh, is satisfactory, but it's not quite satisfactory because... Uh, the word sila in Pali means something almost like habit. Uh, yeah, it means character. Uh, it means kind of who you are as a person. Uh, yeah, so it has to do with a very uh, much more than just ethical conduct. It has to do with your whole mind state and how you are inclining your mind with your experience of the world, your perceptions of other people. Uh, and this is uh, the idea of ethics in Buddhism is so wide. Uh, yeah, it includes exactly how your mind works. Uh, so because it includes how your mind works, it is basically everything we are is kind of included within eth ethics. Uh, so you try to change your personality. Uh, you try to change who you are to incline more towards all the good qualities, the kindness, the care, all the, all the good things. Uh, that is kind of the purpose of this. Uh, this is how important it is. Yeah, it is right there at the very foundation, as I pointed out many times before, at the very foundation of meditation practice. Uh, so the more you can purify that, uh, yeah, and you have to be really honest with yourself what your weaknesses are. Uh, what are the people who still kind of irritate you and upset you in bad ways? Uh, yeah, uh, where can I get a bit more right view, a bit more clarity? Almost everything that I've been teaching here is really part partly right view it's a way of looking at the world uh, and if you get that the more you get that right outlook uh, the more you will be heading in the right direction and this will then work out as a consequence uh, in fact one of the interesting things about the three kinds of sila is that mental sila also includes right view to some extent uh, yeah it's also the, the three kinds of the called the, called the uh, dasala, dasa kusala kamapata the ten paths of um, wholesome actions or skillful actions or moral action one of those is actually a right view thinking about the world in the right way so this is very integrated in this sense uh, so uh, foundational yeah getting that sila right uh, and this is why i put a put a lot of emphasis uh, towards the end uh, on looking at how to overcome ill will uh, how to think a little bit about the sensual world and these things and the last one we did this morning general outlook that has to do with the dhamma and uh, the, all of these things matter because then they kind of they uh, go in that direction once your mind is pointing in the right direction once you get your mind sort of uh, organized in a certain way uh, then of course everything tends to fall into place yeah your speech your actions and everything else they come obviously from the mind so if your mind is in the right spot then things emerge come from that so the first one very important yeah as, as always in these kind of sequences 
And of course, the last one is also important. That's the outcome that we're trying to reach. And the outcome here is to realize the knowledge and vision of liberation is the very last of these factors at the bottom there. Uh, so freedom, yeah, liberate them. Vimutti, we're trying to reach. Vimutti from suffering, yeah, vimutti from defilements, uh, liberation in a sense of, uh, of the real freedom on the Buddhist path. Uh, so which is very kind of attractive to be free of oppressive things, that's really what it means. Uh, otherwise we are kind of walking around always oppressed by these mental things that kind of make you miserable and negative and all kind of things. And when that is gone, that is why you feel liberated, because these things no longer oppress you and you are, are freed from that. Uh, so the last one is very important there. Uh, so uh, this, these are some of the uh, kind of important features. Uh, yeah, the beginning and the end uh, are very important. The other thing that is very interesting about this, apart, it is a natural sequence. It has to happen by itself. Uh, but also, of course, what is interesting here is the importance of joy. Yeah, of various kinds of happiness on the Buddhist path. Uh, I was just saying the other day that we need to market Buddhism. Yeah, well, we need to be smart about how we kind of uh, tell people, and we need to not kind of always talk about dukkha and the reason we shouldn't always talk about dukkha is because it is really very hard to understand the teaching on dukkha it doesn't actually make sense to ordinary people i'm happy i'm feeling well that's what many people would say so what are you talking about dukkha yeah it, it's actually a profound thing and that's what i meant when i said that real understanding of dukkha is actually an insight it is not something you can understand just by reflecting on your life or whatever it's an insight so it is more realistic sometimes to look at the Dhamma from the point of sukha, or happiness, uh, because that is how we often experience the Dhamma. We experience it as a happy path, uh, as something that gives, gives rise to all of these wonderful qualities. Uh, and this is the emphasis in this sutta. Yeah, it's all about these happy states and qualities, uh, one after the other. And many of you know already a little bit about that because of the, your practice of meditation or just in daily life or whatever. You know some of the things that this path can can give you. And there's much more to come down the track. Yeah, that's only the beginning here. So um, once the ethics is in place, and of course the ethics themselves give, size, give rise to good uh, positive states, uh, and uh, one of the uh, states it gives rise to is no regret. So you need to get out of that uh, uh, regret. Regret is problematic uh, because that will uh, darken your mind. If you feel regret, uh, you will not have the brightness of the mind. Uh, you will not have that clarity and lightness of the mind that you, that you have if there is no regrets. Uh, and regret doesn't just mean, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. It doesn't just mean that. It means just the kind of the lack of energy, uh, the darkness that comes when you live in the wrong way. Yeah? And I mentioned that before, the idea of the kamma that works in the present life. Well, that's really part of that, uh, how it kind of darkens your mind a little bit or makes it a bit, bit less buoyant and happy and energetic uh, uh, because of your uh, how you live. Uh. So this is the idea of no regrets. That already feels really nice because you're brightening up your mind. You're making your mind into a more pleasant place to be here. Uh. Yeah, if there's anything we take to be ourselves, it is our minds. If you can brighten up your mind, wow, you're creating a home for yourself that is really nice to live in. Uh, yeah, this home inside, uh, within, and then you close your eyes and you uh, watch your breath and you go kind of inside that home and you leave the whole world outside and you have this beautiful refuge for yourself. Uh, 
uh, deep meditation and samadhi is like a refuge. Uh, you're withdrawing from the world, going into your real home. And the, the idea of a real home was actually a metaphor or simile used by Ajahn Shah. Yeah, he had this idea of the real home inside. Uh, you go within, uh, and that is a stable home that actually has some reality to it. Uh, whereas any external home is far more insecure and uncertain and liable to impermanence and instability and all of these kind of things. Uh, so this this leads you in that direction. Yeah, non-regret. You're then moving. So you, then, then you get started on this thing here, yeah? and then you have all these wonderful qualities of happiness that come from that. Uh, yeah, joy arises when you have no regrets. The mind is naturally buoyant and bright and joyful. The joy here, Pali word is pamuja. It's a very common word for joy or gladness in the suttas. Uh, then a joy comes up. Uh, yeah, and you uh, this just happens through mindfulness of breathing. Yeah, all you have to do is be aware of the breath, uh, and you may uh, you may add a little bit to that meditation, a bit of metta maybe, seeing the breath as something beautiful, or uh, using a bit of these contemplations that we talked about before, chaganusati, silanusati, whatever, or buddhanusati. Uh, all of these things can also help you in the beginning to get this sequence started and then you go on to the breath and then the joy is already there yeah and then you see the breath in a in a uh, something marvelous and then you carry on and as you carry on the joy comes then that joy becomes uh, deeper yeah and when it becomes more powerful it is experienced as rapture uh, pity in the sutta is often experienced as this physical feeling very kind of like this currents almost going through the body uh, and the strong physical and mental feelings is this uh, this rapture that you get. Uh, how do you get it? Just by watching the breath, yeah, continuing to watch the breath, uh, and then this happens as a consequence of that. Uh, so very, uh, uh, this breath is kind of amazing what it can do. Uh, and uh, in fact, the Visuddhimagga talks about a large number of types of piti uh, that you can have. Uh, so if you want to read about that, it's found in the uh, Visuddhimagga. If you uh, look in under the uh, kind of experience of samadhi, it actually talks about these things in more detail. Uh, and uh, it's not really found in the sutta. So sometimes these things can be helpful when you read them in other sources. They can kind of fill in a little bit. Uh. So that is the piti. Uh. And then as you carry on with your breath, uh, then that piti starts to calm down. Uh, yeah, And you become very, very still and very, very peaceful. Uh. And they have a body that you don't want to want to move anymore. You're just really content and happy just to sit here to until eternity comes. Uh, eternity never comes, unfortunately. But or maybe maybe you are too wise to look for eternity. But uh, yeah, so you just sit there forever because you are so content and so happy in your meditation. Uh, so you can see there's two things happening, and these are the two kind of hallmarks of good meditation: the sense of pleasure and profound happiness is increasing all the way through and the sense of tranquility is also increasing here uh, yeah these are the two things that show you that you are on the right track uh, and this is what happens if you then keep on doing this thing in the right way uh, yeah and um i uh, I was told the story many a long time ago. I, I I don't know if this story really is. Uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember where I got the story from. But uh, and it's always a bit scary when you can't remember where you got the stories from. They become so ancient. It's like you wonder: is it my imagination or is it real? Or anyway. So, uh, but this is the story I I was told long time ago. This is from uh, the uh, early days in Wat Nanachat. Wat Nanachat 
was established in 1975. Yeah, and Ajahn Brahm was one of the very first monks who, who actually started that monastery. Ajahn Brahm and Ajahn Sumedho and a few other American, mostly American monks, I think, at that time. Yeah. So they went over, they established this uh, monastery, and then they had a, this kind of usual routine in this monastery, whereby on the Uposita days, yeah, the Poya days in, in Sinhala, Poya days, everyone comes to the monastery, yeah, and everyone sits in meditation together, there's a Dhamma talk, and there's all this chanting and all these things, and then they would sit throughout the night, the whole night, until uh, the morning kind of comes, and they go for Pindavat. After that, you really, if you don't get any good meditation, you're really groggy on Pindavat, kind of look like a drunkard, kind of walking along here yeah, a little bit, uh, or sometimes. And uh, so on one of these Poya days, uh, all the villagers come to the monastery, yeah, and they sit there in the hall, and as the night progresses, uh, people start to leave, yeah, they get really tired, uh, and they kind of had enough, and so they, so they leave, and more and more people leave, uh, until, and this was one of these Poya days, and there was only two people left in that hall, uh, and one of them was this ancient Thai, Thai lady, uh, yeah, and the other one was Ajahn Brahm. Uh, Ajahn Brahm was sitting on the asana, the high seat, a bit like this, maybe a bit higher over there, and this Thai lady was sitting on the floor. Yeah. Yeah, and these old Thai ladies, they are uh, super tough because they have been sitting on the floor their whole lives, uh, uh, especially in those days, this was the mid-70s, uh, this was when the northeast of Thailand was still very simple, yeah, very underdeveloped in many ways compared to what it is now. Now it's far more wealthy. But very, very simple. And people used to sit on the floor. Yeah, that was very, very common at that time. Uh, so if an old Thai lady sat on the floor, that's what she was used to. And she could sit like hours for that, no problem. Uh, but Ajahn Brahm, you know, much more difficult for most Western monks who never sat on the floor in their life, uh, except if you maybe were, you know, a meditator. So uh, anyway, so only the two of them, everyone else had given up already. They were gone back. And then this Thai lady kind of looks at Ajahn Brahm, uh, yeah? And she observes him, and the hours go by, two hours, three hours. Uh, and as she observes him, uh, she look, there's nothing moving here, uh, absolutely nothing moving. It's completely still. Uh, she can't see a breath, nothing at all. Yeah, and it, it is like this for hour after hour. Uh, so eventually, she gets up from her seat, uh, and she walks outside, and she looks for the other monks and for the other lay people, and she finds another monk. Uh, and he says to this monk, uh, there's a monk in the hall, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is the tranquility of deep meditation. Yeah, you get so tranquil, the breath is gone, everything is gone, there's nothing left uh, that it looks like you are dead. But then you touch them, oh, they're still warm. If you're dead, it's supposed to go cold. Yeah, okay, they're still warm. Okay, something is wrong. Uh, maybe not dead after all. Uh. So, this is kind of the what happens in deep meditation is similar to the kind of sequence that you see here yeah, in this particular thing, uh, whereby you go to that tranquility. Eventually, you, the tranquility of Ajahn Brahm was probably even more profound because uh, at that point, uh, uh, it, you know, very likely to be a deep state of samadhi, but this is on that way, and this is similar to how you feel. You feel like this rock, yeah, and you never actually, there's no movement whatsoever in you at that particular point. Uh, and it's uh, kind of fascinating when you when you see these things. Uh. And then uh, from that tranquility, uh, then now the rapture has largely died down. Yeah, you don't feel the physical rapture in the same way, and you start to feel this very peaceful, deep, contented happiness instead. Uh. Yeah, this very profound comes with that tranquility. Uh. And when you feel that, it is so 
delightful and so contented that you can't really keep your mind off it anymore. Yeah, you have to stay with that breath, you have to stay with that object because it's so delightful. And that's how samadhi comes about, because you are naturally with the object of your meditation without any effort required. It's purely like a magnet. You are drawn towards it because it is so powerful. At this point, you are experiencing happiness that you have never experienced before in your life. Yeah, It is so profound, so beyond ordinary human experience. And that is why you are drawn to it in this way, such a powerful way. And then the samadhi comes yeah, from that. So it's happiness upon happiness upon happiness, bliss upon bliss upon bliss. Then comes samadhi. This is how this path works. It's good. It's pretty good for marketing purposes. Yeah, this is how kind of how the path works. And when you hear about this, who 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 wouldn't want to be a Buddhist meditator when you hear this? And of course, then people say, "Yeah, I want to do that." They sit down. Nothing happens. That's where kind of the, the uh, the kind of backlash comes yeah, when <laughs> nothing happens. But then you that is where the hard part is. Then you have to train yourself to actually get to that point. Uh, that, of course, is the hard part. Uh, so this is how samadhi comes about. So what does samadhi mean in this context? Uh, because this is one of those important points. Yeah, Samadhi is kind of this amorphous term and you can read many things into it. Someone asked about this the other day. What does Samadhi real, really mean in the suttas? Uh, and I said it is often defined as non-distracted uh, mind, avikitta chitta. Yeah, and so, but that is kind of still not very clear. It could mean you're reading a book, you're fully with the book. Okay, I'm some kind of Samadhi perhaps. Uh, so what exactly does it mean? And to uh, again, to, to know what it means, you have to really know the suttas well and know what kind of samadhis are mentioned in the suttas. Uh, and there's one kind of samadhi that is mentioned far more than anything else, probably ten times more than all the other samadhis put together, pretty much. Uh, I'm just guessing. And that is the jhana states. Uh, yeah? So when you uh, talk about samadhi, generally speaking, you can assume that it refers to jhana when you see samadhi here. Yeah? So that is kind of a general assumption. It may not always be true, but it's a general assumption. I think generally it is it is right. Uh, so here, most likely, the most important type of samadhi as mentioned here are these jhanas. Uh, and they are very fairly clearly described in the suttas. We know roughly what they mean. Uh, there are some other types of samadhi, like the sunyata samadhi, animitta samadhi, but they are far less clearly defined. It's much more difficult to know whether you have achieved those things or not. Uh, so that is the samadhi. So this is another very important point on the path, that actually to move towards full liberation, one aspect of that is the samadhi. Yeah? It is one of the points that you have to go through on the way to liberation. Yeah? So very important point. It fits with the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah? The eighth factor being samma samadhi, the four jhanas. Yeah? It fits with that idea. Yeah? So um, yeah, it's a very important point because I still, in the present day, sometimes samadhi is underestimated. Uh, the power of this factor to enable liberation to happen uh, is sometimes not fully appreciated, I think. Uh, but when you read the suttas, I think it's fairly clear that uh, what, how I important this is uh, from the Buddha's point of view. Uh, and because it is so such an, a critical one, of course, the result of that samadhi, you see it right here, it is a natural for the mind, yeah? to see things truly, truly know and see. This is the yata, yata bhuta jnana dasana, uh, seeing things in accordance with reality. Uh. 
And of course, the idea of seeing things in accordance with the reality is absolutely essential for awakening. That's really what awakening is. It is seeing things in the right way, seeing things in a new way, in a way that you have never done before, the non-self and all of these kind of things. So if you want to become a stream, stream entry is one type of seeing things according to reality. That's the first time you fully see it, yeah, fully. Uh, so here, samadhi is then the requirement for stream entry. Yeah, this is what you see here. Samadhi, seeing things according to reality, is stream entry. Is, uh, well, stream entry is one way. It, it, stream entry always has to do with seeing things according to reality. So samadhi is required. The jhanas are basically necessary for seeing things according to reality. That's what this is saying. Yeah? So sometimes people argue, is it absolutely necessary or not? And uh, the answer to that is very hard to, to know with absolute certainty. But it kind of misses the point. We don't really need to argue about that because the point is you practice the Noble Eightfold Path yeah, and you don't stop short of the jhanas even though you may think it is not required. You carry on practicing the path. So the question in a sense is redundant, not really necessary. Yeah? So this is how you see things according to reality. Yeah, This is how you essentially become a stream entry. What happens when you see things according to reality? What is it that you see here? And uh, remember before we were talking about the five khandhas? Uh, so what you see, you see the five khandhas. In, in other words, your entire experience, uh, the five aspects of personality, you see that in terms of three things. Yeah, The three characteristics, the tilakana, tilakana, anicca, dukkha and anatta. That's what you see. So you see these five khandhas uh, as affected by the tilakana. So you see Anicca, you see dukkha to the very core. Yeah, then you see anatta. But when you see dukkha to the very core, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that you turn away from those five khandhas. You are no longer interested in them. How can you be interested in dukkha? So your mind turns away. It gains uh, this thing we call nibbida, which is the next, next factor here. And nibbida means like, you are repelled by it. Yeah, if something really is painful, it's like, oh, I don't want to go there. It's like re slightly repulsive or unpleasant, or you have a kind of aversion to it. I think disillusionment here is maybe too weak. You turn away from all of that, and your mind goes in a different direction. That is what Nibida is. Yeah? And when you see Dukkha fully, what, what it turns towards, yeah, it, then, then it turns away from that, and then that is how craving then is undermined. Because you cannot crave for that which is dukkha. So if you see that often enough, uh, that this is dukkha, this is problematic, uh, you want to turn away from that, eventually craving dies down and eventually you are completely liberated as a consequence. Uh, and then you come to the very end of the path. Uh, you are liberated from craving. Uh, yeah, And then you discover the highest happiness in the world according to the, uh, according to the Buddhist path. Uh, and this is what this... Uh, uh, dependent liberation is about uh, that gradual movement to the final liberation dependent on all of these kind of things and basically it is in a very happy path you may think that something like stream entry sounds kind of terrifying because you see dukkha but it's not terrifying at all that's the whole point uh, it is very liberating yeah this is the point of this when you reach these kind of insights uh, they are just another level of bliss again uh, because for the first time do you let go of all suffering uh, 
and uh, you know they say that that kind of bliss it lasts for days it, it is so powerful and you're really you know it's a, it's these kind of things you never forget them again in your entire life uh, you um, uh, you know some some Ajahn Brahm uses the, the idea of the positive trauma you go into a state of samadhi and you have a positive trauma you don't have a you have a post traumatic what is it p post traumatic uh, stress syndrome or something like that uh, or, st or stress uh, yeah Disorder, right? Disorder, okay, PTSD or something, post-traumatic st uh, stress disorder. Yeah. But this is like post-traumatic happiness. Not disorder doesn't work. Yeah, you can't call it disorder. But maybe it is a disorder from most people's point of view. Yeah. So something like that. Yeah, you are traumatized. You can never forget that experience in the rest of your life because it really affects your mind so powerfully. You have experienced something literally out of the ordinary world. It goes into the Brahma world, the higher worlds. And that's just the samadhi. And then comes the liberation, the stream entry, which is even beyond that again. Yeah, Not so much beyond, but they are you know, even beyond that again. So this is how this works. So it is a very, this is just more happiness as you go down the path. Uh, less suffering, more liberation, more freedom, uh, everything heading in the right direction. Until eventually all suffering is gone and all you feel is basically bliss. Uh, and that is where this path is heading here. So that is the uh, uh, little sutta on uh, uh, dependent liberation. Yeah. And uh, one of the, again, one of the in most interesting things about this is the kind of the coming back to the ethics as the very beginning here, and then just relaxing in meditation and then allowing these happinesses to kind of arise on their own accord. That's really what it comes down to here. So uh, that is, uh, I'm not going to, I think that's enough about that suit. I'm not going to say anything more except that uh, I maybe kind of summarize a little bit about what the uh, purpose of this retreat is and and how to kind of carry on if you like yeah and uh, the uh, remember one of the most useful things to there's very simple things that you can remember just to carry on in your daily life and i often ask thing what is the one thing that you should remember to be able to practice the path properly here and the one thing that you need to remember really if you're going to remember only one single thing here can you remember one thing? Are you sure? Yeah, are you absolutely sure. Sometimes you, even one thing can be hard to remember, but it's easier than, than remembering two. Yeah, so if you keep it to one, we at least we're kind of uh, making it as simple as possible. Uh, and there's one thing that you need to remember, and if you can practice this consistently, uh, then you will be on the right track. And that one thing is kindness. Yes, <laughs> that's the one thing you need to remember. Yeah. And if you can do that consistently and with integrity and with everything, yeah, in all aspects of life, uh, then you're going to be on the right track. Yeah. So how can you remember to be kind? Because I, I, I said, I said to you, can you remember one thing. Of course, you will say yes because one thing we can sort of remember it, but we still you forget it, right? You're not going to carry kindness in your mind all the time because that becomes a burden then if you have to think about it all the time. So the idea here is to how to remember kindness. And the idea is to do that. Uh, remember the uh, sutta we had before, the Avidja sutta, how where the, the root of everything comes from. 
it comes from hanging out with the noble ones, the saparisa. Yeah, it comes comes down to really hanging out with the Buddha, reading the suttas, understanding the Dhamma. So to be able to remember a simple thing like kindness, come back again to these teachings again and again and again. There's many different ways you can do that. You can read a little bit of suttas occasionally, maybe at night before you go to bed or a bit before you do your meditation practice or after you come out of meditation or whatever, whatever suits you. Or you can listen to a little bit to a Dhamma talk, but be careful. Yeah, Get those Dhamma talks that are suitable that are aligned with the suttas. They shouldn't be too idiosyncratic because then you don't really know whether it's kind of right or not. So get something which is is, uh, is reasonable uh, and that's really up to you to decide what that is. Uh, and come back to that again and again and again. Uh, yeah. And as you do that, gradually you just get brainwashed. Yeah. Gradually your mind kind of gets uh, guided in the right direction. Uh, and the brainwashing, what is that? Well, really it is the arising of right view. Uh, that's what it is. That's what brainwashing means in this particular case. It's a gradual arising of right view in your mind, reminding yourself of what really matters. And if you have that right view at the back of your head, yeah, it is kind of there at the back all the time because it becomes very important after a while, then it is, becomes very easy to remember kindness in daily life. It comes much more easily because the right view is there to guide you, yeah, to, um, so, so you know what really matters, what you should be looking out for. So come back to these suttas, yeah, and, and uh, whenever, especially if you feel a bit de-energized or you feel a bit uh, uninspired or whatever, these are the things that then guide you and give you back the energy and give you back the ability to steer yourself in the right direction. Huh? And if you do this uh, consistently, uh, again and again and again, all the time, ideally, but uh, we're not, you know, it, we shouldn't put the bar too high, uh, but then... Uh, Next time you come back on the meditation retreat, wherever that is, uh, you will see that there is a change in you. Uh, yeah? What is that change? Well, that change is that you find it more easy to be mindful. Uh, you find that your mind has more clarity. Uh, you find it more easy to access some of the gladness and joy on the path. Uh, you find that the quality, gen general mental qualities are higher. Yeah? You feel more you feel more kind of positive inside. You feel that your mind is more pure. It doesn't have all of those defilements that drag you down and make you feel bad about yourself. Uh, all of these things, your good qualities are going up and your bad qualities are going down. Uh, and that is really the only thing that you need to look out for in the long run. If you're going to judge yeah, whether you are practicing the right way or not, that is all you need to look out for. Are my good qualities improving and the bad qualities going down? Then you know you're on the right track. It's the only thing that matters. Uh, and if you find that your bad qualities are going up and your good qualities are going down, uh, then you have to m make some investigations. Yeah, Why is this happening? Uh, why am I heading in the wrong direction? And you will find that there is a reason for that. Uh, you're not using your mind properly or, or not kind of thinking about things properly. Or even if you just stagnate, uh, yeah, you st feel you st you're stagnating, not going anywhere. Again, you need to ask yourself, why am I stagnating? Uh, there will be a reason for that uh, if you look carefully. Uh. So it is. Uh, you have to be honest with yourself. Uh, you have to be very clear about what is going on. Otherwise, you're going to find blockages uh, on the path. Uh, and then these things will happen as a consequence. Uh, and the path will arise and you will be on the way here, practicing in the right direction. Uh, I always look at my own life. I look back. I've been a monk now for 25 years. Uh, I'm still just like a baby. Still just kind of learning kind of the baby steps. Yeah. <laughs> 
but because there's always more things to sort out yes, there's always like you kind of jeepers I haven't got that sorted out yet so but the reason I'm still a monk is because this you can see this progress happening here yeah you can see a change gradually gradually things are moving in the right direction gradually you feel that the good qualities are increasing and going down uh, the bad ones are going down uh, and uh, because you can see that in yourself then you feel inspired you look back and think wow I was you know wh what I was like 25 years ago gee I but but now things have changed uh, yeah and you feel kind of good about that you're heading in the right direction uh, and when you see that in yourself uh, don't always look at what you need to do more uh, sometimes look at what you are now compared to what you were 10 years ago and then you feel much more inspired uh, you feel much more wow this is working uh, and then you know you carry on even though you cannot see what you will be like in the future you can make the inference that i was like this in the past now i have improved if i carry on i will continue in that direction uh, and things will then come together as a result of that uh, Okay, I think I don't want to talk anymore. Had enough of talking. <laughs> so, uh, are there any last-minute questions? Anything anyone would like to ask? Is anyone here? No, nobody wants to ask anything. Everyone had enough. <laughs> Becomes a point. Yes, Cora. Yeah. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. No, indeed, I, I, that's very true. And I think people underestimate the power of thinking in the right way. And uh, we have so many habits, uh, and uh, so and uh, those habits are often not super duper skillful or super useful on the path. Uh, uh, so because of that, you need to turn those habits around. And turning habits around is actually very hard. It's very difficult because. That's the whole point of a habit is that it's hard to turn around. Uh, so to do that, you need to learn to think in a different way. You need to reprogram yourself. You need to reprogram your inner robot. Uh, yeah, and you need to kind of um, <laughs> and that uh, the inner robot. We all have this inner robot which kind of makes forces us to go in a certain way. So now you want to go more to an, in a different direction. Reprogramming here, uh, and this is a very useful reflection to think about the um, how difficult it is to change habits. Uh, because it also makes us more accepting and tolerant of other people, more compassionate, uh, because we know how hard it is for us to change, uh, it is equally hard for others. Uh, yeah? Instead of demanding other people change, uh, we start to understand, well, actually, they probably, is, they probably can't change. If they could change, they probably changed a long time ago already. Uh, and this is one of the things, sometimes we have these ideas about people should be different, our children should be better, they should be more polite, they should do things differently, but uh, our children and our spouse and uh, you know uh, you know whoever it is your fellows in the kind of in the bsv or, or the monks or whatever we all have these habits uh, yeah we're all kind of driven by these habits uh, so we shouldn't place too many demands on each other because it is very very hard to change uh, we should start by changing ourselves uh, that is really the only place where we can have some kind of real impact uh, because we are so close to ourselves uh, but uh, trying to change others is always a it's a it's a kind of a a fool's game really here yeah. and you just need to be more accepting instead of trying to change other people yeah. yes Shane yeah 
is that a good demotion? It depends on what kind of disillusion it is. Uh, yeah, disillusion comes in many kind of uh, many uh, all of these words. They come in many kind of varieties. Uh, so it depends on the kind of disillusionment. Uh, yeah. So some disillusion. This is the disillusionment that comes from from happiness and joy, profound sense of happiness and joy, and the outcome of that happiness and joy, that kind of disillusionment. Uh, and so that so it matters enormously where it comes from. Uh, yeah. Yeah, after joy. Yeah. No, that's 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 not the same kind of disillusionment. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, if it depends. I mean, if you have an argument with somebody and you're disillusioned in the sense that okay, I'm never going to have an argument again. Yeah, you make that firm determination. Then it is maybe okay. Yeah, because you that is the right way of be, being disillusioned. Uh, but if it's more like you're disillusioned with the other person and you think that they are bad or whatever, then it's not going to be very useful. Uh, but if you make it into a thing, okay, now, from now on, I'm not going to fall into that trap of another argument with that person, then it might be okay. Yeah. Everything is depends on the circumstances, whether it's good or bad. Uh. So, um, yeah. Anyone else want to say anything? Yeah. Yes, yeah, please. Uh, yeah, Chitra. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. 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 I, I think so. And I, I think absolutely that's true. And I, you know, one of the kind of nice sayings from Ajahn Shah was that you can learn from anything in life. Yeah. Nature teaches you. I think he said somewhere in one of his books. And that is really so true. And, uh, you know, just by looking at the world and seeing kind of how things are so out of control and so impermanent, uh, just that watching news on the TV is enough to kind of teach you a lot about the world and what you should give up and what you should not hold on to. Every time the news upset makes you upset, so many people get upset by the news on TV or wherever it is. And the reason they get upset is because you haven't really grasped this basic idea that things are out of control. Yeah. So everywhere there is this idea of reflection and learning and changing your attitude changing your values moving in a different way so absolutely this is fundamental uh, and also as you say reflecting on the suttas and really understand how they apply to you and what they mean uh, yeah it, it will help you yeah it will move you in that direction uh, yeah and then eventually yeah 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 Mm. Mm. Yeah, it will, it will move you in the right direction. You won't get it fully because you only get it fully when you become a stream mentor, but it will give you more more understanding of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, Lina. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. Well, you, you have to, you know, you have to start with the uh, uh, kind of types of stuff. First of all, the f as you said, the first noble truth can be understood. Uh, yeah, like the, the, the death is dukkha, illness is dukkha, those kind of things are kind of easy to understand. Uh, and uh, the, the second thing then to do is to tell, tell people simple things like, well, if you are kind, how do you feel about yourself? And most people will get it that you feel better about yourself if you live a life of kindness. And we all know if we do bad things, we tend to feel bad about ourselves. It's just, you know, this is like basic things. And once you, they get that, uh, they will start to understand why virtue and morality matters. Yeah, And this is part of that cessation of dukkha. It goes in that direction already. Yeah? And then people, if they do a bit of meditation practice, they will understand that actually peaceful and calm mind is better than a really scattered mind, which is all over the place. There's less craving, less desire there. That dies down. Actually, it is preferable. Huh? So you kind of take these baby steps, yeah? And then you take one step at a time and you start to see that this cessation or ending of things, the more things end, the more things come to, to nothing, the more happy you actually feel as a consequence, the more liberated you feel. All these oppressive forces in the mind are, ca are calming down and you start to feel really, really good as a consequence. Huh? So you have to take it. You have to start with the known, uh, yeah. And then when you start with the known, then gradually you get confidence in what the Buddha is uh, is teaching because the known works out well. Uh, and then when you get that confidence, then you are maybe willing to extrapolate and maybe uh, have faith even in the deeper truths of the, you know, third noble truth. Everything coming to an end, ceasing, might actually be supreme bliss. Uh, yeah, hard as it may be to understand in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, true. And I think for most people that thing is very hard to do. Huh? And uh, you you try, but even if you get a little bit, sometimes you will see the little bit of benefits. Yeah. Huh? And uh, so that's so you just you try, and they don't don't have any expectation for the results. <laughs> Because as soon as you have expectations, that again is more like craving, and, and it won't work, and you get really frustrated, and you kind of you, you and yeah, and uh, yeah, don't don't shout too high like Ajahn Brahm is suggesting. I, you know, I, this this Ajahn Brahm stories, I I, they are, they're very interesting because he he kind of adds to it. Yeah, do you know what Ajahn Brahm says? Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, this is one of his sayings. So you can take take a bit with a pinch of salt what he's saying. Can you imagine Ajahn Brahm shouting out? It's very hard to imagine. Yeah, I don't think he's that kind of person who would shout out. <laughs> so his, his stories are, they are edifying, but they're not necessarily absolute truth. I, I think you need to remember that as, as well. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but the but the idea that the toothache went that that is probably probably true yeah that uh, that part of the story I really I believe but uh, so you just have to try but you're right Ajahn Brahm has always has a very powerful mind and uh, so he can do that it doesn't mean you can't do it uh, but you shouldn't expect results uh, uh, that is always a, a, a bad idea uh, so yeah.
Anyone else? Live, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 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 Good. Good. Yeah. 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 It's really like it. Yeah. It is like a shorthand for pretty much most of the Buddha's teachings. And no, in a very beautiful way. Yeah. So good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have to be careful what I say because your wife is sitting next next <laughs> to you. <laughs> no. Is it the same father? Okay, so it's okay, okay. No, I'm, I'm just messing around. I'm just joking. <laughs> so uh, it, it is uh, it is possible to become a stream mentor as a as an you know lay person. You don't have to be a monk. In the suttas, there's a number of lay people who were stream mentors or once returners or even non-returners. So it's possible, but. Uh, it is more difficult, yeah. And this is the point. The point is that Buddha lays down the monastic life for a, for a reason, yeah. Otherwise, he wouldn't have bothered laying it down, yeah. If it wasn't didn't have a purpose, so there is a reason for that, and it uh, gives you very good supporting conditions for practice in the path to you know to the highest level, if you like. And you know you have all your kalyanamittas. Uh, you have people like Ajahn Brahm to hang out with. You get to hang out with Ajahn Ganha. You get to hang out with some pretty awesome people, yeah. That's kind of one of the advantages. Uh, Newbury Monastery, yeah. Newbury Monastery is uh, all monastics are good to hang out with because they are kind of pointing roughly in the same direction, which is very useful. Uh, so, uh, and you're very well supported. You have a good sense of seclusion. You have a very good kind of setup for for making it work, and that is what it's all about. And it is much more difficult. Uh, there are some lay people who live lives that are approximating to the monastic life. They live by themselves, yeah. They live on eight precepts, even. I know many, few lay people who live on eight precepts all the time. And they uh, almost live like monastics. And then it is a maybe a greater chance, depending on how you live that life. Uh, so it is possible, but really, uh, to be honest with you, if you're going to be realistically achieve stream entry, I think then uh, uh, usually monastic life is probably the, the more realistic version uh, of it. Uh, but uh, again, it's not, you know, you shouldn't really, you cannot decide whether you want to become a monastic on that basis. It has to come fairly naturally. Uh, if you force yourself to become a monastic, you don't really feel sure, uh, then very often it falls through, it doesn't work out, and a couple of years down the line you're fed up and you throw your robes in the rubbish and you're going to come back to, you know, ordinary life again. And, and so that's kind of what, what can happen, yeah, if, you, if you're not ready for the monastic life. So it's important to be ready to make it come fairly Naturally, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, enough, yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> very good. <laughs>